We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. So I think that this is a really interesting topic. It's very novel to me, and I'm, I'm also a researcher, and I've done low back pain research in the past, so I'm really interested, Dr. Padula and Jeremiah, on the research behind these spatial uh, visual deficits that you have found, the workings of the prisms, and just kind of what you have seen in your research as well as the research of others. So if you could maybe give our audience a brief overview of that. Certainly. Uh, Well, I described one of the pieces of research that I did initially with visual evoked potentials. And the reason why we did that study is that we were trying to demonstrate that it was a brain processing dysfunction as opposed to an eye dysfunction. So the visual evoked potential was a clear way of showing that if the brain waves would change, then we were proving the fact that it wasn't something uh, related to eyes and eye muscles. We just discussed briefly the visual midline shift syndrome, and I've done several pieces of research with that. First was published, uh, I think, about six or seven years ago in brain injury, and it proved that by utilizing yoke prisms, we could take a stroke population with hemiparesis and increased weight shift over to their non-affected side. Uh, the latest piece of research was published in a journal called Neurorehabilitation. I believe that was in 2016. And in that piece of research, we used the gait balance instrument that I described to you before, the Neuroptrack. And we took a control group and an experimental group and had them walk on the instrument. And then we gave both the control and the experimental group opposite prisms. So both groups had the opportunity to work with a base left and a base right prism so that neither group would know which was the appropriate prism to affect the improvement. And what we found is that when the base end of the prism was placed in orientation to their affected side, the the experimental group that demonstrated a weight shift away from the affected side showed a quantitative shift in weight bearing to the affected side. And when they utilized a inappropriate prism, where the base end of the prism was placed away from the affected side in the direction that they were normally leaning, they increased weight bearing away from the affected side. So this proved the effect of visual midline shift syndrome, as well as the effectiveness of using yoked prisms in conjunction with physical therapy and occupational therapy to to treat conditions affecting posture balance and to demonstrate that risk of fall can both be assessed as well as treated 
through the use of yoke prisms. It also relates to the fact that persons with a shift of the visual midline have a compression of space on one side. And that's what we found is the reason why a spatial neglect occurs. So when we have a person with a spatial neglect, we place that yoke prism base end into the spatial field of neglect and then work through facilitated movement, mm -hmm. particularly by engaging the trunk for active movement, for extension and flexion, or perhaps not elongation of one side of the body and then compression of the other. Yeah. And what happens very quickly is the spatial neglect breaks down, as well as we found very effective treatment for the use of yoke prisms for homonymous hemianopsia, visual field loss. We developed another instrument called the PAVE, where we work in conjunction with the yoke prisms, and we're getting 15 to 20 degrees field opening in one session mm -hmm. by utilizing the prisms and the instrument. So the spatial visual process is relatively new on the block for doctors and therapists to understand its implications for research, but the profound effect cannot be ignored, and uh, it's needed as a cost-effective means for treating these type of visual problems that are affecting all aspects of independence following a neurological condition. Are the, are the populations that you have studied in these studies uh, pretty homogenous, or are they hetero, uh, heterogeneous? Are they ver varied uh, neurological conditions, or mostly stroke, or what are the populations that you've studied? Uh, when we looked at the first paper, I believe we were looking at just we're, it was a homogenous group of individuals with various types, various types of neurological problems, but all showing a shift in visual midline and problems with balance. In the second study, we kept it to just stroke patients so that we could be very specific at demonstrating the effectiveness against those with a CVA. And have you studied this specifically in people that have had concussions or whiplash? Mm -hmm. or any of those other orthopedic conditions that Jeremiah has mentioned? That, yes, the first study that we represented that we did with visual evoke potentials was done with traumatic brain injury. We're in the process of completing another project right now, a study that developed a concussion screening instrument that's app-driven, and we're able to screen out the symptoms and characteristics of a visual spatial processing dysfunction following a concussion within about a minute to a minute and a half. So it's we certainly need more and more research, but the research is documenting the effectiveness of treating these type of conditions through the spatial visual process utilizing lenses and prisms that are prescribed. No, that's great. And, you know, I'm going to ask a couple questions here. So first, you know, I know, Dr. Padgett, you and I were talking kind of before we got on and, you know, you just kind of mentioning that app that you had just said that can easily be utilized by clinicians that should take a minute, minute and a half. And I realized to our audience that this is this app will probably be out by the time this this episode is released here. But Dr. Padula, do you think you could tell us a little bit more specifically about that app and kind of how it can easily be accessible in the clinic and where people can find it at? Sure. We developed an app that combines movement, vestibular, and visual spatial processing with visual fixation. And without going into all the details of the app, it provides the opportunity to see what dysfunction occurs in the visual spatial process when the vestibular process is affected. But most individuals that have a concussion have an immediate vestibular processing dysfunction too. So when stimulated by the visual vestibular system first, their spatial visual process then starts to falter. So you're going to see problems with pursuit tracking, 
convergence, etc. So the app system is one that can be downloaded and can be utilized whether it's on a soccer field or a football field or even in a theater war by a medic. And right now the only standard test for screening out a concussion is uh, the impact test. Mm -hmm. What our findings are demonstrating is that uh, this marries the documentation of this instrument, the NICAD, N-I-C-A-D, with the findings of the impact test so that we could screen out a concussion and then get the person back to the impact test for further evaluation. Wow. No, that sounds really cool. And for our listeners who probably are curious, well, I'll post a link to the name of this app in the show notes. You guys can take a look. But, you know, kind of while we're on the topic of research here, I know that you guys had mentioned before that, you know, when you guys treat this visual system first, you get radically fast changes and improvements. And, you know, I'm kind of curious in terms of the research that either you guys know or what you guys have done. What have you guys found in terms of long-term outcomes in terms of, you know, related to overall improvement with these things by addressing the visual component versus, and then is that any, and how is that different from perhaps the way that it's being done now with people going more of the focal point, working on more of the vestibular rehab and more just the proprioceptive solely work without the vision? Clinically, what we see is if the patient falls into the category that they have had a stroke, traumatic brain injury, as Dr. Padula said, it doesn't cure that. It helps them in the rehab setting. So he alluded to the fact your therapies for those types of patients are similar to what we've done with NDT therapies for weight-bearing, all of the things that you would do to help stimulate elongation of trunk, so on and so forth. In the orthopedic side of the world, the patients that we treat with Dr. Nedro come through the setting, and long-term, these patients are in prison sometimes four to six, maybe eight weeks. At that point, Prism therapy is done for them. They go on their way with normal life and activity. Granted, you'll get some of the people that may still have some lingering minimal headache dysfunction, but beyond that, from an orthopedic side, we'll have patients that discharge from care, and because they can now assume normal movements of rotation head and neck and have appropriate postural awareness where before would have been compensatory, these patients do much better than if we didn't have it as a treatment because everything we would have stacked on top was compensatory to help them better with symptomology and move better. But once you take physical therapy away for six, eight weeks, a lot of those dysfunctions start to creep back in because the person's been in a significant state of compensation. And our profession does a wonderful job of looking at that and testing it and supporting it. But on the back end, when you flip this model over and you get the eyes right from the get-go, because we've had patients come in 20 years removed from a car accident, and within six to eight weeks, they're significantly better. have had patients that were told because of previous past medical history and previous lumbar spine laminectomy that was in a car accident, that they absolutely had to get a current lumbar spine fusion because that's all they could do for pain management. They had PRISM from Dr. Nedro. And in five weeks, all of the back pain that they had at L5S1 completely gone. And it will stay gone because you're treating orthopedic dysfunction in the physical therapy realm in that state that your core exercises, all the stabilization that we want to do, truly will work now with less involvement, more active coordination of the patient because they don't have to focus on it as much. So I like to tell patients the cool part when we figure this out is we truly now get to work with an active range of motion that's dealing with gross and fine motor. And that gross and fine motor ties in directly to what goes on with magno and parvo cellular dysfunction in the body. 
And once that works, the postural system will allow you to work on appropriate active range of motion in both fine motor and gross motor. And we know in the physical therapy realm, if we can't complete or get gross motor dysfunction taken care of, we can do all the fine motor we want. But at the end of the day, dysfunction will come back because we have to function in that gross motor platform. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I think that's really interesting to kind of hear that perspective of how that works. And I guess um, another follow-up to that is, does the research really seem to support that that method is kind of superior compared to other ways? Well, the research does. I mean, that's what we demonstrated. It's cost-effective because there are prism glasses to enable a person to maximize potentials beyond the plateau is far worth not doing it, especially since so much money is being spent from third-party reimbursement on the rehabilitation of the individual. Uh, I wanted to add to what Jeremiah just said is one of the advantages that we have in uh, in the area of neurovisual processing rehabilitation is that it's no longer just an observation. We have quantitative ev- evidence that we can generate from a visual evoked potential to say that this person has now no, no longer needing prisms. Mm-hmm. And also the Neuroptrack is an instrument that specifically analyzes gait balance posture. So if there's an imbalance in the shift that's still there, uh, we can still treat it. In the case of one of my uh, patients that had a, uh, a concussion, he traveled up from New Jersey to my office, and he would stay for several days a week, began working with me in November, and I prescribed a moderate, moderately high amount of prism. I think it was around five to seven diopters of yoke prism. And last week, I assessed him again and found out that he was now only needing about a diopter and a half to two diopters. Still needed that prism, but a significant advancement, and it showed up quantitatively. So we have specific tools and instruments that can analyze that for the person. No, that's great, and thanks for that clarification, as that definitely helped. And, you know, I know we've talked a lot about kind of what the current research is, but now I kind of want to switch gears and kind of ask, where do you guys feel that the research focuses next in the realm of vision and vision rehab to kind of help continue to progress things forward? Boy, that's, that's a, that's a question that we could answer for the next 24 hours. Um, this is only just tipping the iceberg here. The, the tip of the iceberg is what we've done. It brings out all types of research that we need to do. Number one, many of my colleagues are still diagnosing and treating convergence insufficiency mm-hmm. following a concussion. Uh, well, I don't treat convergence insufficiency. I treat the patient. And the patient has a spatial visual processing dysfunction. So when you go to the cause, then you can treat the condition that's creating the characteristic. But we need research to document that what I'm saying. A simple study that would just simply take a control group of concussion patients with a convergence insufficiency and one, an experimental group, where we just treat them with prisms. Don't do anything for the control group and treat the experimental group with the prisms, and after two to four weeks, reassess the convergence ability. Very simple test, very simple research, <laughs> but I think it will prove exactly what I'm saying. In yeah. fact, I'm starting that project now. There is a need for longitudinal research to look at the effect of utilizing these prisms over time. One aspect uh, that I wanted to add to what Jeremiah was saying is that when do the can we get rid of these prisms? And I have a lot of patients ask that question. Well, the more significant the neurological involvement, the less the chance they're going to be able to get rid of prisms. Mm-hmm. I had a patient in today with a traumatic brain injury that I first saw in 1995, and she has a significant traumatic brain injury. But if it wasn't for the prisms, she would never be up and walking. She was told that she would never walk. 
and she is capable of walking in a limited degree, and she continually makes progress even after all these years, 20 some 25 some years. So if there's a significant neurovisual processing dysfunction in addition to a neurological impairment, then they will need those yoke prisms or the uh, rehabilitative prisms most likely permanently. If there is no neurological event, then the chances of eliminating the prisms are very high. And then there's that slope in between the patients that will still require some type of treatment over time. I think that everything that we've been talking about today, first of all, Brandon and I were talking about this on the side chat, that we definitely never learned any of this in school. So we're learning a lot from you guys, just talking to you and hearing about your research, your experiences with your patients, your clinical applications to this. And I'm really interested in learning more. So I'm wondering if you guys have any resources like podcasts, books, websites. I know, Dr. Padula, you've written multiple books on this, courses, conferences, etc., that you would recommend for people like me or, and Brandon who really want to learn more about this. Well, I've done, I think I mentioned to you, I did the 50-hour course when we were invited to give the course at the Shepherd Rehabilitation Hospital in Atlanta. Fortunately, we made the decision to videotape that course, and it's three different levels, and the course is online on my website, padulainstitute.com, and you just simply have to click into the educational area of the website, and it provides you a link to where that course is provided, and that's through Clinician's View, another source. But uh, professionals, therapists, and doctors can take that course and even take it for continuing education in their particular areas of profession. The research papers are published in the journals that I mentioned. I've also written a chapter in Brain Injury Medicine, Principles and Practice by Drs. Uh, Zassler, Katz, and Zafante. I believe that book is considered uh, one of the important books in brain injury. I wrote that with uh, my co-author, Eric Singh, who's a neuro-ophthalmologist at Johns Hopkins. I've also written a chapter in Dr. F uh, Felice Zolman's book on brain injury, and uh, that was published a few years back. That's a medical text. Uh, I've written a number of papers on a variety of different areas. Uh, one of the things that is often overlooked in terms of neurological problem is Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing a, a large number of patients now from throughout the United States, Canada, Mexico, Europe, and beyond with tick-borne disease that have been misdiagnosed and the condition goes neurological. And they end up with visual midline shift syndrome, spatial visual processing problems, as well as post-trauma vision syndrome, which we described previously. So if your participants are interested in any further information, they can write to me through my website, and I'd be glad to correspond with them. Jeremiah, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, so on the orthopedic side of the physical therapy realm, um, because of all the work, Grace and stuff, to pick up at Nora two years ago from your introductory class and then dealing with Dr. Nedro, developed a class, um, and the title is Somatosensory reorganization of the visual systems and its systems is plural for a reason as you go through the education but if people get in contact with me as we give you the link have taught that course in phoenix this year the purpose of that course is to allow people to understand how they can screen and find out in the outpatient orthopedic realm 
what we're even kind of talking about on scratching the surface of what Dr. Paggio speaks of, and then to break down and show therapists how do you go about making sure that you're not over-treating if this patient has a condition so you'll get a better positive outcome. And as a result of that, with the orthopedic side of it, as well as the neuro side of it, it's a day and a half course. Scratch is just the surface, but so people get an understanding of how do we tie in the visual dysfunction, postural component of it, and then vestibular. Because I agree there's still a component of vestibular, but as you work through this realm and understand it more, you'll realize that we need to change how we support the vestibular system versus what we've currently done in the physical therapy realm. Wow. No, I think that's really interesting, guys. And I know kind of in the off off the record here, I know we were talking about this kind of before the interview about kind of the thing, the program that you guys are developing. So to kind of give you guys a platform to do that, um, you know, do you guys think you could talk about the curriculum that you both are developing that's kind of meant for PTs, OTs, and ODs for this topic? And kind of what did this, what does this look like or what will this look like when it's ready? Well, the, the curriculum that I developed for the course that I gave is very different than what you would receive in a standard optometric curriculum or ophthalmological residency program or even a physical and occupational therapy program. And what I did is I went back to, I recently published a paper in brain injury called The Consequences of a Spatial Visual Processing Dysfunction Following a Traumatic Brain Injury. And it was a review of the literature for the past 70 years. And the reason why I did it is I kept getting doctors and therapists and researchers saying, well, there's no evidence there. And if you don't mind, I'll take a moment and tell you a funny story. When the paper was submitted, it was rejected from the journal because the reviewers looked at the paper and said there was no evidence there. I turned around and I wrote to the editor and I said, do you think they forgot to look at the 80 references that were researched? <laughs> the editor was very kind and rescinded the rejection. And then I went on to work with reviewers to have the paper published. But the reason why I wrote that is that there's an enormous amount of evidence. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this paper to create the thread going all the way back to the mid-20th century, where researchers like Colwyn Trevarth and Held Hine Leibowitz, Post, famous visual scientists of the 20th century all said the same thing, that there was a bimodal visual process. The problem is that the professions never figured out how to make it clinically applicable. That's been my contribution. My contribution is not just the research, but to take the research and make it clinically applicable into a new model that literally crosses professions between optometry, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, as well as medicine in bringing forward the idea that we need to bring all aspects of the best of these professions together to understand this. The curriculum model that I'm developing is based heavily on understanding the neuroscience of the brain mm -hmm. and the relationship of not just the neocortex in cars in communicating amongst other portions of the neocortex, but to recognize that half of the neocortex is there to receive information from midbrain and brainstem. But when you go into the occipital cortex, it has to add an additional three layers of the nine layers, a total of six layers that are devoted to input from midbrain, thalamus, and brainstem. 
It then goes on to describe the relationship of the development of the visual process and how we organize pursuit tracking, convergence, and accommodation. Those visual skills all come from organization of the postural base of support against gravity and then organization of the relationship of flexion and extension and lateral weight. And then from where I go with that is I bring in the aspects of visual processing and the relationship of lenses and prisms, and then put together the rehabilitation model based on the proprioceptive base of support. When you take the course, you're going to be taking that curriculum. I already wrote it. We, uh, I have proposed an advanced competency course for optometrists, which is, is very much needed because we have doctors right now that are claiming to be doing neurooptometric rehabilitation and haven't taken anything more than a one-hour course, mm -hmm. and are basically doing vision therapy, the same type of concept of eye therapy that was developed in the 1950s for kids with learning disabilities. And that's neuro, not, that is not neuro-optometric rehabilitation or neurovisual processing rehabilitation. You want to add to that, Jeremiah? Yeah, and, and I think the cool part is with the conversations you and I have had, that when the blending of this program with all the background you have done and then you add in the physical therapy side on what it can encompass beyond the neuroscience. So we've always envisioned could you truly have an integrative medicine approach that truly from top down would be screened on when a patient comes in and then know where that diagnosis needs to go from the get-go. And, and those are the conversations that Dr. Pagano and I have had as to how do you wrap your arms around that? Because the education is one piece, but then you also have to get other medical providers on board because the referral relationships of where some of these patients go to large rehab centers that still aren't using this protocol or technique still kind of puts you a level or two away from the fact of being able to get patients in with the diagnosis that fit all of these categories because they're at a major rehab center that's not doing any of this treatment at all. So you almost have to wait until the patients are discharged out of those facilities still want more care, and you're picking them up when they're two, three, four, five, ten years post, and then the process starts. So I would like to see it where it changes that effect, that we would have access to go into those facilities, educate the staff so they can come from the ground up so all of those patients are hitting the ground running when they're discharged, rather than three years post, that just like most people on this podcast or hearing it for the first time, the patient goes, well, why has nobody done this? So that's where I envision and hope it can go. Because like you said, the education piece is there, but the leveraging so it's active within our profession is going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really interesting. And I think personally, my mind has been absolutely blown this whole conversation. So I think it's fantastic. And I love that kind of a thing. My mind is blown too. Thank you for <laughs> sharing this information with us, guys. No problem. Really our pleasure. No, it's awesome. And, you know, gentlemen, we like to end each episode to this podcast with kind of this final question. So it's not really specifically vision related because we kind of like to hear what everyone's thought process is, is because our podcast name is called the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. So the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether that be medical, optometry, or physical therapy related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? Well, I'd be glad to take that one on first. I'm a strong advocate for interprofessional education and interprofessional or interdisciplinary care for the patient. Despite the fact that we talk about the patient-centered approach, we're far from that. In the way our health systems are designed, we're designed to provide a level of care by plugging the patient into our system 
as opposed to designing the system around the patient's needs. And if I could change one aspect of that, it would be to deliver the education of the professionals back to the needs of the patient as opposed to learning checklists by which the professional checks off whether or not this person can fit into a particular syndrome or aspect of rehabilitative care. So I think if we could do that and we could start to get professionals to begin to problem solve again, certainly checklists are effective, but we have to go beyond the checklist. We have to start being able to problem solve when we're both working with the patient as well as when we're preparing for that patient and thinking what could be the possibilities of how we're going to treat that individual. And I, if, if I could add to that, my input has been from approximately seven years ago when met Dr. Nedro, and he had explained to me that Dr. Pagela had done all this work and where the training came from. It hit home that there was a huge deficit that from what we had been taught in physical therapy and then even what I had been taught from a neurological realm in the postgraduate orthopedic residency program that at a ground level, I would like to see that whether it's medicine-based or physical therapy, if they want to pick it up, is that we embrace the fact that we need a different way to screen just like we do with other neurotesting from reflex sensory testing to have a better baseline so that we can understand and appreciate when a patient comes in the clinic is visual processing a, is it real? And do we know where to go with it? Because I think until that happens, concussion is going to be big and concussion is going to go and it has a label. So people are going to get really good at treating that and then forget that there's thousands of all these other patients that walk through our clinics that have the same dysfunction, but because it's not a label, then it's not real. And I think if we can embrace that as a profession in physical therapy, that it's not just the rehab patients, because majority of people know what a stroke or a traumatic brain injury looks like. But somebody that comes in with chronic headache, whiplash, that all of those people get the necessary neuro screening, and it's not hard to do from the get-go, I think we'd have a huge impact on A, how we see a patient, but B, the overall cost of healthcare. If I could add to that point, you said that so well, Jeremiah, and if I could be specific, what we need to do is define, redefine vision in the 21st century. We're still carrying over a 19th, 20th century definition of what vision is, so it continually limits the way our healthcare providers see the patients. Occupational and physical therapists frequently will pick up a visual processing or spatial processing imbalance and refer out to our colleagues in ophthalmology and optometry only to get the report back saying that the eyes are healthy and the person has 20-20 acuity. You know, that's great in the late 19th century and the earliest 20, or the mid-20th century. But it doesn't help an individual when we have so much information about brain and brain processing in this 21st century. So we re, we need to re-educate the professionals and redefine the nature of visual processing for every profession to be involved with. Thank you for sharing that with us, guys. So I know that I'm really interested and I'm sure all of our listeners are interested. Where can we, Dr. Padula, you mentioned the PadulaInstitute.com. But where else can we find you guys online? Do you have any social media accounts that we can follow or any other websites that we can go to to learn more about this or learn more about you? No, I'm not part of the social media uh, networks at this moment, but I'm about to launch something. <laughs> but I would like to invite uh, both you, Stephanie, and Brandon to the Institute if you're interested in seeing this in action and seeing how we put together the quantitative data with the assessment. 
and observe for yourselves the effectiveness of this form of treatment. Jeremiah, do you have uh, some things to say about social media? Well, I'm on Facebook. Um, you can find me under my name, but then our clinic, um, Center for Spine and Sport Rehab in Lincoln, Nebraska is also linked um, on Facebook. Have a, I believe a Twitter account. Don't ever use it just because of issues using it. But the big thing would be if you want to find me in those places, send me a message. Be happy to connect, get you more information on that side of things. Well, very great. Very great, guys. And again, thank you both for your time and your work throughout this this specific avenue, because I think this has definitely been a very informative discussion. And I'm really hoping and I know that a lot of our listeners can get a lot of value out of this. So thank you guys both for your efforts and for your time. And it's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Lite tool, which Lite stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.